0: This is Lee from Diabolik. Here with another entry in my podcast, talking to writers and critics and historians about their awesome work. And I'm very blessed and lucky today to have Jennifer Katian Armstrong here. Um, Jennifer is the New York Times bestselling author of Seinfeldia, um, How the Show About Nothing Changed Everything. She also wrote the excellent um, uh, book All About the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and also a book on sex and the city called Sex and the City and Us How Four Single Women Changed the Way We think live and love she spent a decade on staff at entertainment weekly and has since written for many publications including bbc culture the new york times book review vice new york magazine and billboard she also speaks about pop culture history and creativity so a very busy lady how are you jennifer
1: good thanks for having
0: me excellent it's great to have you on board um so my first question and i just um finished your uh, mary tyler moore book it's, it's one of those books i've always wanted to own and i finally got around to grabbing it um so it was a bit of a delay on it but i i'm so glad i did because it's just brilliant and Oh, I I powered through it in, like, three sittings. It's just so engaging and wonderful. Um, So congratulations on that. Um, I just wanted to find out about your childhood um, TV viewing, because I feel like you and I are very similar. We grew up in front of a television watching movies and TV shows. So tell me about that. Talk me through that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's a huge inspiration for that particular book, The Mary Taylor Moore Show book, Mm -hmm. um, because I did watch... The Mary Tyler Moore Show as a kid. And I think it is one of my first memories of watching kind of like an adult TV show, you know, mm-hmm. like um, not Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers or something right. like that. <laughs> um, and I was little um, and I, I was not quite. Quite born yet when the show was actually first airing, Um, so I was born kind of in the middle of its run in the mid '70s. But my guess is I was watching it like in syndication. You know, when you're five, you don't know that. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) you're not really thinking that deeply about it, but. Um, I loved it and I think it's very funny that I loved it when I was five because, you know, now looking back at it, I'm like, what was I so into? And I think (laughs) it really is the women because what I remember so strongly is that I would, you know, play Mary and Rhoda. And that basically consisted of me when I was Mary I had like a desk and some desk supplies. So I was (laughs) at work. And then for Rhoda, I would like put a headscarf on, right. and that's kind of it. Um, so, but it's it's really it's to me that's so telling because I was responding, you know, without obviously thinking that much about it at such a young age to just seeing these cool young. Successful single women, mm-hmm. and that felt different to me from other things I had seen on television. Like, and so I wasn't playing house, I wasn't playing mom, you mm-hmm. know, like so many other female characters on television. I was playing office, <laughs> and um, that was really you know, it's like when I looked back later and realized, you know, I became a journalist, I lived in a big city by myself, you know, like I really patterned a lot of my life after what I saw there. That's so amazing. I watched that, I loved Rhoda too, yep. and that was kind of a little more like, I can remember watching that as a family when it was on at night um, in prime time, and then just like everything, you know, we were pr- we were a big TV family, and um, it was a time when you would still kind of all watch together as a family, because mm-hmm. you'd have one or two TV sets Mm -hmm. pops Mm -hmm. and there's only so many options anyway right it's not like now where the kids can go in a different room with their phone and watch netflix it was like we're all watching cheers we're all watching the cosby show at the appointed time and so that was big that was a big thing in our family and i also even remember watching like syndicated reruns during the day if i was home sick so the brady bunch and courtship and buddy's father and that sort of thing
0: isn't that cool? Like it's we're so lucky in that regard. Like you know what I mean. Like I I romanticize about yeah. those days as well. It's it's just beautiful. And you're right. It's a communal thing. Watching it with your family is is really important.
1: Yeah, it was just different. It's just yeah. very different. Like you know, your your family. If you were like that, um, you know, my family would would speak in. You know tv catchphrases and stuff right. we'd be making jokes that you know i remember my dad doing carlton the doorman from uh rhoda <laughs> for yeah. instance and many many other you know things that came up through our tv viewing as a family as you know things progressed like i said you know the big it's like those big 80s shows cheers and silver spoons mm-hmm. and Fact life and all of that stuff, I would at least watch like with my mom or with my dad, like at least one of my parents at the same time as me.
0: Awesome. Now, you mentioned earlier um, Mary Tyler Moore was kind of your first quote-unquote adult show you remember as a kid watching. Um, but were you a big fan of, like, the Golden Age TV? So you mentioned things like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, what did you mention? You mentioned the court Brady you, the Brady Bunch and stuff like that. Yeah, so were you a fan of things like, you know, I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched and all those women as well? Like Because they were, you know, powerful, amazing, iconic women as well. Um Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that I'm and I this is on my brain right now because I'm writing a book about early TV, so like 1948 to 55. Awesome. So, um, you know, I this does not make me special at all, but I definitely watched all of I Love Lucy mm-hmm. in reruns over and over and over again. That was just that was such a staple, and it, I was really, I. you know how you do this to yourself sometimes, like, make yourself feel old, um, but I realized recently that, so I was watching I Love Lucy in, like, the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. and that felt like ancient history, right? Like, it's black and white, and it's, you know, and... Then I realized, like, that's the equivalent of kids today watching the Fresh Fresh Prince of Bel Air or something, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, a yeah. '90s show, which is just shocking. It's really, it wasn't as. Far back in history,
0: yeah, and also I think because we all grew up with what you know, the monsters at the same time as Facts of Life. And right. You know what I mean? So family ties was on, but we also watched Leave It to Beaver. So it was all kind of for me anyway. It was kind of like a beautiful magpie's nest of wonderful stuff, and like escapist TV where everything was kind of um, uniform. They all sort of seemed to have the same warmth and and sweetness and depth, and I loved them all. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it was I could never sort of distinguish. Um, I mean, I could definitely distinguished eras for god's sake <laughs> how could you not um but yeah it was something kind of uniform and sweet that was all sort of sort of uh, uh connected i guess well interconnected in a way for me but um That's really cool. Um, so Mary, so you talk about how Mary and Rhoda were kind of very iconic and and influential on your own career as well, and also so left a major impact for you as a child viewer. Um, were there any other sort of iconic women or any other um, female characters around that same period that really resonated with you? And did you, as a teenager and, you know, sort of going into being a writer and looking back retrospectively on television and its history, did you pick up on the transition of when, things like, you know, Petticoat Junction and Green Acres and all those shows were sort of making way for things that were, you know, the Norman Lear universe or Mary um, as well, like all these shows that were kind of taking in realism as something as their backbone rather than having sort of escapist, you know, um, you know, fun like Mr. Ed or something. Now we're coming into sort of heavy grounds such as All in the Family or Maud, etc. Did you sense that and pick that up and respond to that as a teen um, coming out of childhood?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say, like, All in the Family was big for us, too. We Mm -hmm. definitely watched that. And then I I rewatched it pretty early, I guess, in my... Like, I I was an early teenager when I was decided to... Like, that was one where I actually remember, and maybe one of the first, where I remember... Deliberately doing a rewatch, we all do this now because it's easy to do. But Mm -hmm. like, I had to find it in syndication, and I decided like I'm going to watch this every night at whatever time it was, because it that was when I figured out like the significance of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it just the reason I first started watching it again is because those characters reminded me so much of my own grandparents. Right. Like, we would make jokes about this, because, but you know, I happened to catch an episode, and I was like, Mom, they're acting exactly like Grandma and Grandpa, and she was <laughs> like, I know. Um, and then I decided to rewatch it, and then I kind of got, like, what was going on, mm-hmm. and I feel like that might be one of the first times that, you know, it's like the first little inklings of wanting to be a TV historian when I grew up. And um, yeah, that was, you know, I did kind of then get very interested in that whole Norman Lear thing going Mm -hmm. on concurrently with the Mary Tyler Moore show Mm -hmm. and that team. There's like those two teams who were really making the greatest television of that that time. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, from there you kind of start to notice like, oh, these silly shows that I watched as a kid, Fe- That's. I think that might even be why they felt so old to me, like that they were so. They must have been so far back. When in fact, you know, you mentioned like Gilligan's Island and that stuff, yep. Green Acres. Of course, I watched all of those in yep. syndication eventually. And it's weird. It's like when. How was I doing all this? I don't even know how it all happened. But <laughs> definitely watched all of those too. and I guess Nick at Night and stuff. And it, it really, I think, part of the reason those felt so old is that they, they had a different idea about what television should be. Mm -hmm. And that was like the, that total, that age of like lowest, no offense to those shows, they can be incredibly entertaining, but kind of that lowest common denominator, you know, there was definitely an idea among um, executives of the time that you had to really play to like, you know, just the most basic, audience and just nice pleasant fun times no complicated characters nothing challenging just fun and you know it's that that's why it was such a big deal when they transitioned to Mm -hmm. the mary tyler moore show and on the family because it was such a different you know completely different idea of what TV can and should be
0: yeah, definitely. reshaping and um, re-envisioning the, the, the role of the sitcom. Um, right. and, and bringing in that kind of um, you know, uh, serious subject matter within a comedy format, which is incredible and powerful. Um, I still cry like a baby watching a lot of episodes of All in the Family and Maud yeah. and Mary. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it always will resonate. Um, so, just going back to um, when you started work on Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, what was the seed was there something that kind of made you go you know what I spent all this time watching this show I know it back to front I'm gonna write you know this you know this dedicated book to its history and and it's because it's a beautifully written book it's so it's so nicely paced and, it, and the tone's beautiful. It's so loving. It's like a really beautiful love letter to the show and to all the characters, but also really honest and candid. And there's some great insight into all the multiple stories regarding all the different people um, who were part of it. I mean that the, the subtitle is All the Brilliant Minds Who Made the Mary Tyler More Show a classic. And that's absolutely right. You pay tribute to them all and you, you know, give them amazing service and justice. But what was the seed? What how did you start this whole research and you know where did it come? come from
1: well thank you i really that's that's really nice to hear and um i mean it was this was such a like clear specific because it was such a passion project so passion projects always have good origin stories mm-hmm. um so there's two big things one was that i had a breakup i i canceled my wedding and Ooh. moved to a small apartment by myself in new york city and had a tiny little tv and a dvd player mm-hmm. at the time and decided i was gonna um i don't i don't think it was even on dvd actually now that i'm thinking about it i think i decided like i found the mary tyler moore show in reruns and decided to like TiVo it and rewatch it And that was when I kind of realized, like, first of all, I watched rewatched it with no expectations and then thought, oh, my gosh, this is actually really still a good show. You know how sometimes it isn't it doesn't really hold up. Um, I felt like this really held up exactly to the modern standards, which is incredible, and saw how much it resonated with me. Because here I was like about Mary's age, doing the exact same thing, working (laughs) as a journalist, the whole I was I even had a fold out. Bed, like awesome. a fold-out sofa bed, like she did. So that was the first part, and then the second part was that I also, when I was at Entertainment Weekly, which was that time, um, wrote a lot about women in comedy. I guess especially, like a big thing that was going on then was the, the rise of Tina Fey, right. and so I talked to Tina Fey a lot, and her, her, Julia Louis Dreyfus, a number of other women, mm-hmm. um, you know, would cite the Mary Tyler Moore Show as their inspiration, which wow. makes sense, because yeah. what else was there, right? What else could there be at that time for them? Um, and so it was kind of those two things that made me start to look into it. And then once I looked into it and saw that, and this, as you know, is a huge part of the storyline of my book, is that um, it was the first show to have... Several female writers Mm -hmm. working for them, and Mm -hmm. it was deliberate because the creators, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, loved the idea of being realistic and they knew that they didn't know what it was like to be. A professional single woman in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So they've sought out these women and mentored them. And I thought like, cause you know, you have to say something for 300 pages in a book. Um, so <laughs> you want a good story. And once I saw all of that, I, that was when I started to put together the proposal.
0: Awesome. So, um, so people like Trevor, Sil- um, Silverman and, mm-hmm. um, Uh, Susan Silvers, they're amazing amazing influential writers and then of course, if you look at television history you've got these incredible women like Susan Harris um, you know, Linda Bloodworth Thomas and all these amazing women uh, did you feel that a lot of these women had to sort of live up to expectations of not only being, you know, um, competent and successful and entertaining writers or engaging writers who can write and deliver great comedy, or, but, but also having to sort of live up to sort of expectations of being a woman and, you know, second wave feminism being such an influential part of that period of the 70s TV writing? Because I remember interviewing Barbara Gallagher, um, who is in your book, referenced in your book. And she had that sort of sense um, when she was talking about writing for a couple of episodes for Maud and Mary um, Tyler Moore as well, where she kind of felt a little bit of that pressure. She kind of felt it from both ends of trying to prove herself in um, the industry as well as getting sort of a bit of a, you know, a nudge and a, and a kind of, you know, a scrutiny from women's say, for instance, the Now Movement or, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was huge and short, I'd say like the middle of the run of the, the show and I guess probably the middle of my book, mm. um, you know, that starts to really, it, it isn't there at the beginning, it's kind of funny, it's like they're sort of fighting just to get this thing on the air yeah. as something about a single woman, that's a big deal and then by the middle of it, it's sort of, you know, the women's movement is reaching its crescendo and so, it beca- That's when it becomes this symbol, and it's super scrutinized. Mm. And you know, all the women that I talked to talk- talked about a bunch of things. You know, that um, totally make sense. Like, there's it. And it, it's reflected a lot in some of the episodes. Like, there's an episode where Mary talks about how they'll, you know, the station managers will bring visitors by to see her to see the woman executives that they have right (laughs) yeah um and they they all talked about this kind of phenomenon of all of a sudden you know variety the show business publication wants to do their big story about how all the there's all these women women are hot now this is the big thing (laughs) um my one of my favorite details that i'd return to over and over again from that book is this piece that TV guy did on Susan Silver, and the headline was, The Writer Wore Hot Pants. Right. Um, Which is the name of the really, chapter
0: in your book. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, there really is a picture of her wearing hot pants by mm. sitting at a typewriter um, to accompany because it's like, this is the game you had to play. You know, you had to kind of like, I mean, you didn't have to, I guess. You mm-hmm. could say, no, I'm not going to be the writer who wore hot pants, mm-hmm. but... It's like, this is, this is what they want from you. And it's, if you want to get ahead and you want to, you know, increase your profile and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just like, mm. this is, this is how it's going to be. Is like, there's going to be a bunch of stories where the tone is essentially like, golly gee whiz, can you believe there's a lady who can write a show, you know, a <laughs> comedy show. Yeah. And that's just, it's like, and, and it was a wave and they, it was a trend and they kind of even knew it then that like this could go away at any point. And the fact is we've had multiple, this happens to a variety of, you know, sidelined groups, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing happened in a couple different, at that time, and then again in the 90s with, um, you know, African-American shows Mm -hmm. where it's like this, it's great that there's a bunch of them, but it's kind of like a trend that can go away at any time. And so, you know, and that's that, you know, historically, we can look at this and and honestly, this book I'm doing now about the early 1950s in television, I ran statistics and basically it's the same number, same percentage of women working behind the scenes then. Absolutely. Versus the 70s versus now. Yeah. Like it hasn't changed as much as you think it has. There are more shows, which means we have more women to see out there but the percentage is not any better Mm -hmm. and the only thing that's really changed significantly is that at least we can have pretty you know we have a much bigger variety of women we have sort of more complicated and damaged female characters that we're allowed to see now things like fleabag and stuff like that um so that's changed but the actual percentage of women you know making this stuff has not Gone up and down significantly. It's like the Mary Tyler Moore Show had the vast majority mm-hmm. of the women writing for TV comedy at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about because you talked about how the producers wanted women on board to write about this, you know, this female-centric show about a woman protagonist. Um, And because I remember uh, talking to Richard Vaxi from the Golden Girls, Uh, he was a head writer and producer on that show. And we were talking about how most of the writers on that, on the Golden Girls were men. And they were also very young men. (laughs) They were all like in their Mm -hmm. 20s and 30s. But there were definitely women writers, of course, etc. But he was talking about how um, he never understood the idea, which is kind of common thought now, that people who are that character or reflected of that character or kind of resemble that character in any kind of sense. Um, should be the ones writing and I, I and he doesn't agree with that because it should just be about empathy and writers like writers are creatives and they can write about whatever you should, you could be a, a white um, Jewish woman but, and you can write a black TV show by all means go ahead do it um, so I, I kind of agree there as well I think it should be you know if you are a writer and you actually have empathy and you understand characters and you know how to create characters go for your life write what you want um, but what's your stance there I think I feel like it's absolutely warranted for Mary Tyler Moore but then you know, just having the right writers, I think, mattered um, when the show sort of took off. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah,
1: I mean, there are and there are plenty of men who wrote for that show yeah. who were were absolutely brilliant, yeah. right? Um yeah. And the men who, you know, the the showrunners like uh, Jim and Alan. Mm. Just, I mean, that's why that show's so good. Mm. Is it's it, that's why it holds holds up? I think, is because of their sort of ethos of character driven comedy, and it's just a very beautifully made show um you know that said there's a bunch of anecdotes in the book as you know just even the tiniest things like the tiniest details like there's the one of my favorites is just susan silver talks about telling them like mary would never say i'm gonna go wash up that's right for dinner (laughs) like that's just not a woman thing yeah that's such a tiny or another one of my favorites and i think this is her too she's such a good storyteller um the that she talks about going in for one of her first pitch meetings with them and telling them about being a bridesmaid. And she's like, they thought I was a genius. And she's like, (laughs) I wasn't really a genius. I just told a story from a woman's perspective that men didn't know about and hadn't been told. Three million times before, so they thought this was brilliant and hilarious. (laughs) And so that's you know, I and there's a million of those examples in the Mm. book of you know them taking their own lives. There's some there's thing I think from Rhoda. There's there's a writer who talks about like you know difficulties with her mother and Mm -hmm. all, and it's it's specific to that experience. And it, it you can detect it, you can detect it's wrong. Like the washing up when you're part of the group that's being. Represented If they get it wrong, you know. Um, so I think it's a combination, and probably the best situation is to have a combination of, like, great writers mm. and people from that group also, because, you know, you do want to... Especially when you're talking about marginalized groups. I think that's the key, too. It's like, of course, probably... I mean, we have a bunch of examples of, like, you know, in literature white men writing beautifully about other groups Mm -hmm. but it's nice if we could also give the other people a chance to write about their own experience, (laughs) you know Um, so I don't want to be too hardcore about it but I also think that there's an an advantage to um, having that authenticity having, sometimes even I mean this is just, I just thought of this now but I feel like sometimes even you'll find that the person within the group can kind of go farther because right. they know they know where the boundaries are in a way that you know the white man writing about a black woman might mm-hmm. want to be careful, which is fair. <laughs> yes, you should be, <laughs> but you know it. It they know exactly how you know actual life is in that skin. So I think there's definitely you know, and this comes this has come up, and I think well, not, maybe not my Seinfeld book, but. Um, All of my other books, it's like this comes up all the time. And Mm -hmm. actually, even in Seinfeld, because I talked to the men, you know, it was mostly male staff uh, who wrote for that show, and I asked them about writing for Elaine, and it was interesting because they kind of were working out the theory that they would just give Elaine stuff from their own lives and it totally worked and it's one of the reasons she ended up seeming like this incredibly liberated character at the time so right. it works always
0: yeah absolutely and also the flip of that is you know some of the greatest heterosexual romances on film and theater and stuff have been written by gay men um, and absolutely. some and some of the greatest you know um, black characters are actually conceived by white people you know so it all, it all throws around it it depends on the quality of the writing really um, but yeah. you're absolutely Absolutely right. I think, there, you know, um, certain dramaturgical input might be necessary at, t- at times because I loved hearing about all those stories about the Good Times, you know, um, meetings where Esther Roll was, you know, uh-huh. really kind of um, pissed off many a time with the, the writing and the scripts. And yeah. that that was also balanced with her <laughs> disdain for the JJ character sort of taking off as this kind of catchphrase, as you know. Um, right. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because he became a commodity really and sort of ruined the show um right um but I, I love good times <laughs> and I, like, I, I
1: mean it's it's a great I watched a lot of that yeah as well and um love love that show in in all of its incarnations and I think I probably did as a kid I'm sure I enjoyed the sort of big character of JJ but I understand their concerns and that's a really good example though of just like mm. having people around on on the set who can say like absolutely not you cannot say that or whatever you know like like putting their foot down and saying this this is you know there's a difference even between uh you know we wouldn't say wash up and then there's also like this is absolutely offensive and you cannot say this so it's good to have people around who you can run this stuff by and understand their experience
0: totally so one major thing, one major factor of Mary is that she's decidedly single. Amazing, you know, which is phenomenal, amazing to see. Um, and that last moment in the last episode always breaks me, where she, you know, talks mm. about the the group being her family and to feel mm. less alone, etc. It's real. It's too much. <laughs> I did a lecture recently on very special episodes, and I closed with one of, with that, and the audience was in tears. But I did my job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but b- before her, we had the lovely uh, Marlo Marlo Thomas in That Girl. Um did you were you a fan of that girl and did that kind of did you feel like that was kind of like a little bit of a foreshadowing of what will happen with Mary they're very different shows very different women but what do you feel about that girl in comparison to Mary Tyler Moore
1: Yeah um it's funny I think it just was like a timing thing for me that I missed it a little bit it was a little bit before what you know just like what we were talking about that Mary was sort of a little more like there right when I was 5 yeah. um Whereas that girl was already a little bit past, but, um, and it's funny cause I always have to, had to do like verbal gymnastics when talking about the Mary Tyler Moore show. Cause you can't say this is the first show mm. about a single woman, mm-hmm. right? That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you always have to like caveat it with that girl, but there are differences that I think make, I, I think that that girl's great. And Marlo Thomas is like. like she's been an amazing feminist activist her whole life. She's Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, And and this was a big deal even then, you know, like this was a big deal that she got that on the air and it, but it was, it was very tempered compared to the Mary character. And I think that's what the difference is, is like, she was younger. She always had a boyfriend who was around as a character. Mm -hmm. Um, She was still like kind of dependent on her father to a large extent. And, you know, so it's it's just a little bit different from that bracing effect of seeing a woman who is over 30, who is truly independent Mm -hmm. and professional and making her own way. And also not like it's interesting because there are dating plot lines, but Mm -hmm. it's really not the focus of the show. And as you mentioned, the finale, which is probably the best or one of the best finales of all time. Yeah. Yeah. does, has nothing to do with, like, oh, and now she finally
0: exactly. found someone. Exactly. You know, there's
1: no... And they don't even mention it. Like, they're not even concerned that she hasn't. It just was not her priority as the show went on. And that is... I, I think that plus maybe the combination of just the women's movement peaking mm-hmm. during the show, it probably made a difference in why we think of Mary as the patron saint of plus that that and just like small factors that make a big difference like the hat toss you Mm know mm -hmm. um the iconic hat toss that is literally iconic it is the symbol for you know freedom and independence absolutely that you know i think that all that stuff kind of came together to make mary the official
0: patron saint of single women on television. Yeah, and uh, so as a man, I really love her because she's um, she's complicated, she's flawed, she's very human, um, she's spunky, and, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I hate um, spunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also just, um, she's incredibly vulnerable as well. And there's also, there's a sensitivity and a warmth to her and a nurturing element to her. And she's a goofball. Um, But also what I really enjoy about her, and you mentioned Lucy earlier, the the legendary Lucy, is that we laugh at Lucy um, being kind of, uh, you know, fumbling in the dark. And if if she tries out some kind of uh, entrepreneur manoeuvre, she fails and we laugh at that. But Mary's really actually good. And she anchors people and she makes everyone else around her look great. Um, and that's something that's really empowering I feel like she's just such a really together woman um, even though it might not seem so but that's what makes it complicated and interesting and dynamic and captivating to watch um, so I think that's interesting about it what, what are your thoughts on Mary as a person um, as opposed to being a symbol
1: um, do you mean marry the character the character the character the yeah her? <laughs> yeah no,
0: the character and then we'll start talking about Ms. okay <laughs> those
1: are two different things but but also both have answers yes um, <laughs> yeah I definitely think you know they did it's she's still in that wheelhouse of like they had to have the good girl character right but I th- I responded to that a lot mm-hmm. I think because I was a midwestern good girl Mm -hmm. so i think that's a that has a lot to do with why i responded to her initially and continue to because i i related to her struggle to kind of stand up for herself for instance that's a thing that is is a common thread for her is being at work and increasing you know getting increasing responsibilities and having to assert herself yes and that's something she struggles with and it's how she's different from her best friend, Rhoda, for instance. And, you know, I think that all of those things, she's, this is why they were so good. Like, this is why Jim and Alan were so good, is they made, I mean, not just her, but all of those characters that are unbelievable characters. They're mm-hmm. just really good at that. Mm-hmm. And they were very, inter- their only interest, they talked about this over and over to me, was making a good character-driven show. And so, for instance, when they took a bunch of criticism for Mary not being feminist enough, Mm -hmm. Mary, especially, like, one of the big examples is always that she continues to call her boss Mr. Grant, even though everyone else calls him Lou. um, They felt very strongly, and I think they're right, that that's what she would do. That's just who she is, and they're not going to change that to make her a better feminist symbol yeah and so that and what, and
0: what does like that those, even mean right like <laughs> everyone everyone yeah everyone's feminism is their own it's all in, you know right in yeah
1: right and it's just it was a weird time you know it was this time when the feminist movement was so heating up and yeah um you know they that's what ha- that happens to a lot of you know symbolic characters incidentally I think of like Will and Grace Mm -hmm. and how that show took a lot of criticism that could be right, but whatever, you know, um, took a lot of criticism for not being, you know, it's like Jack's too stereotypically gay. Will's not enough, not not gay enough, you know, all of this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, It's it's when you're kind of a pioneer, when you're one of the first people want a lot from you. And Mm -hmm. so it ends up being that you're never going to be quite enough. And in this case, they were just very, it's, Interesting because they, even when I was talking to them for this book, you know, it's so this is early 2010s, and this is a show from the 1970s, and they still were like very, they wanted to be very emphatic to me that they had not set out to make a feminist show. Right. So they were still kind of like I th- I interpret that as you know it was like they just were still kind of reeling from all of that you know, feedback that they took mm-hmm. back in the day that they hadn't done it right. And so they were very emphatic about this was not our intention, you know, and it's kind of cool that that's how it worked is that they didn't intend that. They just made a good character of the time who was a woman mm-hmm. dealing with these issues. And it, it in retrospect, I think it plays better because of that. Like, one of my favorites is when she asks for equal pay because mm-hmm. she finds out her predecessor in her position made more money and was a man and she ends up getting a raise but she doesn't get equal pay she doesn't get the same amount he did and that feels very realistic to me like yeah. that's that's actual life you know um so yeah i think i think in that way they ended up doing a really good job of just continuing to focus on yes she's dealing with some issues that are in the zeitgeist right now but we always want to make sure that she does it in a way that feels authentic to that character and it feels like she's a real person it really does
0: Mm -hmm. she is she's very much a real person um And also, you're absolutely right in saying that she um, transcends being just a slogan for a movement, um, Uh which is what a lot of people probably thought she should be. Um, And that's what happens. You're right. These characters get sort of uh, pigeonholed into doing that. It's interesting, just to to digress for a second, you mentioned Will and Grace. Did you ever see a show called Brothers? Um, It was on Showtime during the 80s. No. Ah, oh, you got to check it out. So it's basically okay. three brothers. Um the eldest brother runs a sports bar um, and the youngest brother the first episode the youngest brother comes out as gay on his wedding night. Um oh. and and it's the first sort of show to really have a recurring um gay character, a main gay character. And Great. the best friend, his best friend that sort of teaches him, I guess, quote unquote teaches him the way of the gay. <laughs> right. Is this kind of um throwback to like a sissy um pansy mm-hmm. character from the 30s, you know? that kind of a feat, Franklin Panghorn-type character. But he is so political, and he basically is the strongest character in it, and it's kind of like this empowering... You know, a feminine gay man um, that sort of really does um, uh, is a big predecessor to Jack. So it's kind of really interesting to check that out because it kind of plays up the power of those those kind of stock characters. Um, and Mary's not a stock character. Mary is a, you know, she's a leading character, a leading lady character who's complicated and not a cartoon or a caricature, even if it's a caricature that, you know, transcends what they're supposed to be about or their prescribed, um, you know, role. Um, so I really love the fact that she has so much going on for her and that's part of the writers work as well of course Mm -hmm. and you know um jim etc as well as mary herself um real life mary Mm -hmm. so can you tell me about your thoughts on Mary as an actress um, in and outside of the TV show, because I do want to talk to you a bit about things like ordinary people uh, yeah. and because it just blows me away. But yeah, just yeah. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore as an actress uh, embodying this role of Mary. And yeah, how? It's uh, so, yeah,
1: it's so. Um, I think she's really fascinating, and I think the dichotomy is fascinating, especially because weird there's just weird stuff around the fact that it's called the mary tyler moore show Mm. Um, that's like a throwback to 50s stuff isn't it
0: it's like the Loretti young show yeah
1: yeah and that makes sense it was their their biggest selling point at the time the show started was that she was on it Mm. but i think what makes it weird is that people will say like you know if you if people wanted to like make a reference to that character they very rarely use the the name mary richards Mm. um they don't say like oh who are you mary richards they mm. say oh who are you mary tyler moore mm. you know um or the hat you know if you think of the hat toss you think the name mary tyler moore mm. and she's she wasn't like her character mm. um there were some i mean i there's always some base you know there's always some similarities but um i, fe- I feel like in a way my perception is that she might have been the most different from her character of all the people on that show yeah um she did not identify as a feminist as the biggest thing mm-hmm. and kind of wrestled with, I mean, she wasn't anti, mm-hmm. like she certainly did um, appearances and things, but Valerie Harper, who played Rhoda, mm-hmm. was a yes. self-identified feminist and was on the cover of Ms. Magazine and did events with Gloria Steinem and was a lot more of like, and her character too, especially when she got her own show, talked about being a feminist talked about getting Ms. Magazine yeah. um, Mary d- was very reticent to do that um, she talked in r- interviews a lot about and this is an extremely typical like line of the day was kind of this she was like I love men people thought that if you were a feminist you like couldn't like men or something. And, you know, I love men. I love being married to my husband, Grant Tinker, who ran her production company. Um, She felt like she liked being a little bit different in that relationship. Um, All very typical, you know, feelings of the time, but not certainly not on brand for feminism. And yeah, it's just very interesting. On the, By the same token, I think she brought a lot of herself to the character and is one of those very interesting women, right, who say those things. and then, But she does have her own production company with her own name on it <laughs> yeah. and a huge hit television show. And many people talked about how – and this is common. People always say this, that kind of the this, this star sets the tone on a set. And so if the star is crazy – or whatever, that's what it's going to be like. And if they're grounded and professional, that's what it's going to be like. Mm. And I heard nothing but good things Mm. about that, about her leadership on that set. She was very generous. Um, That's why that could be such a wonderful ensemble show. She, people talked with awe over and over again about how, um, you know, on some shows, if like the star would want all of the best lines. Yep. would often give them away in fact she'd be like that's actually about a rota line you should give it to her yeah
0: i love that section in your book where you detail that. that's that was really that was lovely like really warming to hear that yeah
1: right and and how i mean like valerie talks a lot too about how much mary helped her because she was valerie was not a very experienced on camera actress at Mm. the time she was a stage actress yeah and so mary helped her with that i mean mary is like like it's important to remember she already had just been an iconic character not that long before on yeah, television yeah. you know to have two in a row like that to be on the Dick Van Dyke show yeah. as an iconic tv wife mm. i mean really like the, a new kind of tv wife who you know shockingly wore pants that's right it um, <laughs> yeah. that was like a big deal at the time like they were that was a, a significant it doesn't look like a step forward now but the fact that she was like this young Hip wife who wore pants and they kind of had like a sexy relationship, like how they were into each other was new for TV. It wasn't, they didn't bicker. It wasn't Lucy and Ricky. And, you know, that was new in itself. And this is another new thing for her. So, you know, she's bringing a lot. And I think it's interesting too. Like, I think it probably helped people accept her character. Maybe it made some people more, you know, like, shocked by her character on this show too but i think for the most part it actually sort of snuck her in because people had such affection for her Mm. from the dick van dyke show as laura Petrie, and here you know then she can kind of sneak in and make america love this i mean at the time it's shot like the the early reviews it's one of my favorite um my, one of my favorite things in most of my books is the early reviews are almost always wrong on right. these shows, yeah, and yeah. they're hilarious, you know. And those, the, these were no exception, where they were all like, "She seems kind of desperate and single," and it's like she's Jesus. definitely not. De- like you're reading something in there that isn't there, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. And they're very worried about her being single, and yeah, I think she ends up bringing and and I mean is basically a pretty complicated woman herself, and probably brought that element. I think she she confuses and surprises people because she had a complicated, difficult-at-times life. She wasn't just... She's a beautiful, talented woman, but that did not make her immune to various ups and downs, and I think she brought that sense to her acting, and I think she was always able to surprise people because they always underestimated her.
0: Yes, definitely, and she you you mentioned how Mary herself would always sort of offer the best lines or, or you know better lines to other characters if it was more fitted mm-hmm. um, and also the way she bounces off other characters she's really um, you know proactive but also really good reactionary a really good reactionary character um, mm-hmm. someone that can sort of bounce back and 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 take the take the joke or deliver the the setup for the joke really well just amazing like a really flawless performance from her all the time um, and yeah. i love her the best thing is the her banter with Lou and and just their, oh. their love for each other and his fatherly kind of warmth and love towards her and just her respect, her deep respect for him and his mutual respect for her, even though sometimes mm-hmm. it might come across as sort of, you know, they're, you know, toe to toe, but there's such a mutual love for them. Ed Asner, what a legend. What what are your thoughts? <laughs> the, I mean, what a genius man. Uh, talk to me about him. What's, what, what did, when did you sort of fall in love with him, would you say? Oh,
1: God, <laughs> this cast is like legends only yeah, all the time. Exactly. <laughs> um, Is not it crazy? It's crazy. Like hey, I, it, it was, it was such a, it was such a, it, I still sort of can't believe that I got to interview all those people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It mm. was just, especially something from your childhood. There's something extra special about that, and yeah. it was really surreal. To like one of my favorite moments from doing research for this book, besides the absolute like life affirming fact that I got to spend an hour having tea with valerie harper um she was she was an absolute beyond joy Mm -hmm. but ed i went to his house and interviewed him in his like home office and he like was trying to explain to me the you've got spunk um scene Mm -hmm. and how like it didn't play well at their first sort of dress rehearsal in front of an audience and he was trying to explain to me like how he had to, he felt like he had to modulate that, like he couldn't be too mean to marry in that, but he had to be gruff enough to be true to the character, and so it was this delicate balance, but he sort of reenacted it, when we were sitting there, and I was like, that was a special. Wow. It was a <laughs> little moment for me, and yeah. it just felt really cool to be there while, with
0: an <laughs> It's fun. Those going. moments are great because, like, all your pro sort of journalistic, you know, historian stuff steps aside, and you, you're just a little girl again. <laughs> yeah, the, mean, the, the, the,
1: it's the fan. crazy that I got yeah. to hear him say, you've got spunk to me, and, I mean, I think he's told that story a lot, so I am not the only one. Right. But it still was pretty... Exciting, And he is such a character, you know, Mm. Ed himself Mm. is such a character that, um, you know, they're all that way though. They were all really like very specific. And like I said, I think a lot of their characters really do reflect pretty closely Mm -hmm. to a lot of the, you know, everybody always wants to say, no, I'm nothing like my character because first of all, they don't want to be identified that way. And second of all, they, you know, they're actors and they're doing a job and, we need to give them credit for that but i think he was more like that character than many of his other characters i think a lot of his other characters were sort of bigger and not as complicated whereas this was like he got to play both of those both the like big loud gruff guy and also show us that he had heart yeah Underneath, which was, to me, some of the greatest stuff on that show is when um, we start to see Lou's veneer crack, you know, my favorite stuff from him is when he's getting divorced Mm -hmm. and it's so, these actors are so good. They're not just funny. That's one of the great things about that show is they're all acting for real. They're not doing, it's sort of what you're saying. And this is no disrespect to Lucy. She revolutionized television, but like, Lucy is our first big icon and she's such a broad character. It wasn't about, like, Lucy's inner struggle. It was about her physical comedy, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, like, we never got into, like, but why does she want to be... Yeah. A star. Yeah. What is going on with like? Why doesn't Ricky want her to be one? Like we never, we never really.
0: Like, <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting just talking about the whole idea of comedians doing drama or dramatic pieces. I I feel like sitcoms, um, if they if they run long enough and if the tone is right and if they're sort of geared in that direction, they give the opportunity, um, to these amazing people who are kind of considered only for their comedic work to do these dramatic moments. You know, like with B. Arthur, for instance in Maude Mm -hmm. episodes or even uh, Michael J. Fox doing really sort of dark stuff in like episodes like Hey, My Name is Alex. You get to see them unravel and showcase amazing stuff. And I remember talking to Joyce Van Patten and she was talking about Carol Burnett um, was in talks at one point to um, doing the Alan Burstyn role for The Exorcist. I think Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. had her name mentioned. And the studio was like, oh, no, it's Carol Burnett, you know, she's a comedian. And Joyce said to me, the thing is when you do comedy and you know how to do comedy so well, You can do drama (laughs) because Mm -hmm. comedy is much harder. And she sort of was arguing that. And I go, absolutely, of course it is. Like, you fall on your face if you're not good at it. Um, But, yeah, I I feel like that's what you're saying is absolutely correct. It's so true. This whole idea of Ed Asner, um, you know, oh, sorry, the character of Lou Grant, just being so sensitive as well, like getting to see his softness. And there's that episode where his wife remarries. Oh, and he's sitting in the audience. It's just too much, and Mary's by his side. Just beautiful stuff.
1: It really, really is, and that's, I think, I mean, I'm sure there's some other examples where this happened before the Mary Tyler Moore show, but (laughs) they're among the first to do this consistently, to do kind of the comedy and the drama, and also to use actors who are known for drama Mm. in in the comedy. So, like, Cloris Leachman. Yeah. I mean we I think we sort of think of her now as pretty funny. Yep. Um but that's not what she was known for. She had just been nominated for an Oscar for the last picture show yeah, like and one. This was, right, this was not um what she was known for and it that character I think is probably so good because of her commitment, right? That's why she's funny. Yeah. It's, she's so committed. Like <laughs> Phyllis is, Phyllis takes Phyllis very seriously. Yes. We, yeah she's funny but it's funny because she takes herself so seriously and that's what cloris does there you know she's not doing wacky stuff for the most part she's just very into being phyllis yeah and they're all kind of like that that's that's why almost all of those characters feel so lived in is i mean even i mean and this this is something that definitely comes up in the book is ted baxter yeah um you know ted knight Sort of was doing this without knowing it. And it's at one point I talk about in the book, you know, he came in and said, I don't want to be this buffoon anymore. Um, and I think he didn't even realize what a good job he was doing. Right. And that this it, and they gave him a little more depth as it went on to they gave him you know, a wife uh, to play off of and that sort of thing that made it really fun. Georgia Engels, just yet another... It's I know. Just the, the show's bench is so deep. I know. That it, and we haven't even talked about Betty White.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, let's backtrack. Georgia Engels breaks my heart. It, like, Because she's just uh, she's just divine, and you just want to hug her. <laughs>
1: you don't have to... She didn't have to do anything. Yeah. That's the, like, who had that voice? Absolutely. She just had to, like, be... And she was both, like, funny and sweet. And that's definitely a good example of, like, a person who basically is just so much like her character that it works you know.
0: Absolutely and also I love that she got to showcase her dancing talents in an episode. Yes. You know all that so it's oh. so cool like she's really cool um, just going back to Ted I did it I'm, I'm working as you know on a book on very special episodes and I interviewed um, Jim J Bullock who um, was Monroe in uh, Too Close for Comfort um, and yeah. he had some great stories about Ted um, uh, one of them was that Ted was really anti smoking at one point and would not let anyone and smoke on the set but then would explain why and it was quite moving um, for people to hear. Um, And then he also took um, Jim aside and sort of, you know, coached him into, um, you know, being more confident in his performance and all this sort of really warm, lovely stuff but really interesting to hear secondhand stories from these legends who are no longer, you know, with us. Um, So it's really nice to hear that. Did you get some Mm -hmm. nice anecdotes about people who are sort of, you know, who aren't with us anymore?
1: I mean, he was. What was crazy is that until recently, he was the only major car- major person on that show who was not alive anymore. Mm. Um, I always used to make I made jokes when you know the book came out in 2013, and they were basically all still alive. I and know. I always made jokes about like, there's something in the water on that set yeah. because <laughs> not only were they alive well past the ages of like 70 and 80, not working, but. They were working yeah. at that time, and some still are. I believe Ed still pops up sometimes. Ed's still out there doing stuff. Um, yeah. Betty's sort of, I think, chilled out for the most part, which is fine because she's like ninety-eight years old. I know. Um, she can just chill for a little bit now. But,
0: <laughs> I think. I think she's contributed enough. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. But at that time, at the time I was promoting the book. Um, Ed was like in a couple guests, like big guest starring roles on TV that he had recently done. Betty was still on hot in Cleveland mm-hmm. and chorus was on, um, raising hope. Mm-hmm. And it was like, they're on major. <laughs> like that's it's amazing. Crazy, it's great. You know, I mean, it just, they, they loved what they did. They just had such a, it's one of, I mean, to me, the through line of all, Legendary TV shows is that they just have a magical cast. Mm. And that's partly a skill that some people have is to cast correctly. And it's also luck, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just that ha- like, that's a theme in all of my books because these are all legendary casts and you just, no matter how good the writing is, you don't have it
0: Definitely. unless you
1: have this cast, but it is a little bit, if you look at just, you know, the way how stocked this cast was, and then the fact that you know they lose Rhoda and Phyllis to their own spinoffs at some mm-hmm. point and kind of want to, quote, replace them, um, in the sense of like still having the same number of characters to work with, and then they bring in Georgia Engel and Betty White, like, yeah, but that, that's your like backup is. <laughs>
0: Exactly, yeah, exactly. And I love, because I remember people sort of, you know, um, uh, having arguments as to which apartment they preferred, which basically is an indication of which, you know, part of... you know, section of the series of the that you'd like, the early se- the seasons or the latter ones. And I love both, you know? Hey. And I really, oh, Betty White is divine. Like, she's such a bitch and she's wonderful at being oh. one. And it's just terrific to see her do that because um, I grew up mostly watching Betty at, in The Golden Girls and then re-watching hey. uh, Mary Tyler Moore um, later as I got, you know, 10, 11, 12. I was like, oh, my God, this woman can do so much you know, in these two roles.
1: I mean, I think there's something... I mean, she was fantastic on Golden Girls, don't get me wrong, and in, mm. in, in everything she does, but, like, I just see feel like there's some kind of fire in her yeah. in the Mary Tyler Moore show. I, like, I don't know if it was because it was considered kind of a comeback for her, yep. or it was the first time someone had really... Now, maybe not... I don't know if that's true. It's kind of... feels like the first time, or the first time in quite some time, that someone gave her, like, this really fun, interesting thing to do as opposed to, you know, it was basically like playing on her old image from the 50s, which was this super sweet TV personality and that's why she's wearing those ridiculous dresses, for instance. She used to wear ridiculous dresses like that on television in the 1950s (laughs) and it really was sort of deliberately a play on that image and the fact that she gets to like play with that and be this awful person that we still sort of love
0: yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just that I can I never get tired of watching that first episode she's in um, the Lars affair yeah when she's literally having an affair with um Phyllis's unseen husband yeah does not apologize for it at all and like the stuff that where they show her the confrontation between her and Phyllis on the set of um Betty's characters homemaking show mm-hmm. is just like these two titans and they're both insane and this is the only <laughs> character i think there's literally a part where phyllis says you know what you're bananas and this is a character who has been the benchmark for crazy that's on right the show that's yelling, right. and she's like oh my god no you've outdone me yeah you win
0: it's, yeah Forget exactly.
1: It. It's, oh, it's so good it's
0: so good and it's, it's have you ever seen um otto preminger's advise and consent where yeah. Yeah, and um, and she pops up as a senator, and it's like this mm-hmm. really straight performance. I like this versatile actress that people kind of forget. Um, how versatile Absolutely. these people are! Amazing talents. Now, Valerie, oh my God, like Queen, and you know we lost yeah. her as well. Um, there's a really cool made-for-TV horror film called Don't Go to Sleep. If you haven't yeah. seen that, have you seen that? <laughs>
1: I don't think I have I think I remember just like coming across
0: in my research oh you need to see she's amazing she's a powerhouse in it so she basically she's the lead and it's her and Ruth Gordon um, and Dennis Weaver so it's like yeah it's just powerhouse women all the way Um, and she's amazing in it and it's it's a possessed child film so her daughter's possessed stunning Um, love it but yeah Valerie Harper you know our Broadway baby I remember being a kid and being obsessed with the Muppets as we all were and her episode of the Muppets just always you know, Aww. brought a tear to my eye and her doing the Broadway baby number where she changes over different outfits. She goes to May wear yeah. but just so cool. What was she like that hour having tea with her? Like that is friggin' awesome.
1: Yeah, that was really big for me because as well, I identified with Mary, like I was saying, I, I really loved Rhoda and I think mm. it's cause I like aspire to be like her. Um, which is funny because she always made the joke that it was the opposite way that, you know, Mary's the one you want to be and Rhoda's the one you are. Yeah. I, th- I felt the opposite um, as a good girl from the Midwest. I knew all too well what it was like to be Mary, but um, really, I think the reason that I liked to put on the headscarf was that I could sort of be a little more like Rhoda, which is I saw as assertive mm-hmm. and bold and cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, that's what. I. So this was very exciting for me to meet her, and um, she was also just really sweet and generous and helpful. Uh, so that's you know it's that thing about meeting your heroes, and um, in this case, she exceeded my expectations like she's the one who called Betty and said can you you know you should talk to this woman for her book um did that with some other people and just and she loved like she was really excited by sort of the book and the feminist themes and celebrating the women who wrote the show and all of that stuff so um that was nice just because she really lived up to everything
0: Awesome. Isn't that, isn't that a blessing to have that? That's
1: it really. Freaking
0: really awesome. Is. <laughs> That's very cool. I love the Roto spin off show. I'm sure, of course, you do as well. Yes. Um, and Nancy, my God. Oh. So I've got this. Uh, I did a book on 70s film musicals, and I go from 70 to 80 covering all film musicals as well as made for TV musicals. And I cover 1980 as well, and I talk about Fun. Can't Stop the Music. And I interviewed Valerie Perenni, and Valerie said, um, that Nancy Walker would sit in her trailer and chain smoke and watch soap operas and then people would come to the door and go, um, you know, you need to direct this movie and she'd turn around and just scream at them, direct it yourself. So <laughs> so, so I just wish I got to meet her. You know, <laughs> That sounds
1: amazing. That's what I want her to
0: be like. Yeah, exactly. Did you love her <laughs> as the mum? I love her and I love oh. Harry Gould. It's just so beautiful. They're just great.
1: Uh, everybody. I and mean, Julie, Julie weird. Kavner. It wasn't a perfect show. Show, like Mary, mm-hmm. but I think for me it was that's another reason that Valerie was so special to me. Is like I think they were that was more of my entry point because, like I said, I remember watching that you know when it was on prime time and um, didn't really understand. Like I didn't get everything. I like I it was not affected by the fact that she got a divorce from Joe or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sort of liked all of those people, and that's another one where they really did have a lot of great people is as the core cast, and I think it made it work a little better you know what i mean like when they had to weather that like her getting married and then divorced from joe yeah worked okay because they still had you know the sister character and the parents and you know you were still sort of connected to all and carlton the doorman for that matter yeah so
0: yeah absolutely he gets his own cartoon spin-off i mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um so brooks what do you you're a fan of taxi of course you mentioned taxi pops mm-hmm. up in the book that's another like you're talking about the the, the lightning in the bottle casting thing that's another yeah. example and that you know that struggled in the first season because i had that extra character i forgot his name but there was the yeah cat, i can't
1: remember either you know yeah.
0: you know the guy yeah, <laughs>
1: who, yeah. Um, i always feel bad for these there's there's sometimes is this person who's like yeah. you know kind of not quite right for the show and they get kicked off and then everything takes off and they're left out of it
0: yeah that's pretty upsetting um so mary's career oh my god i've got to mention and you talk about it in your book the made for tv movie that came out like in i think early 2000s um mary and Hmm. Rhoda, where they reunite what are your thoughts on that personally because i i I I I caught it accidentally on television go oh my god awesome let's do it (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's so it's so cute. Like, it's yeah. really cute. And I kind of think it's a bummer that it didn't work out. I think it was maybe a little before its time or something. I don't know. Just not quite talking about the lightning in a bottle. This one didn't work. But yeah. um, it's sort of too bad because I think there's no reason it shouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if they had had maybe the right writers or the right showrunner or something to that effect, maybe it would have worked better but i enjoyed the movie like i feel like it didn't it wasn't very well respected when it happened for some reason but you know i don't know maybe maybe now it just seems more like plausible because we're in the age of the reboot Mm
0: -hmm. that you can
1: you can see now you'd be like why like that would be one of the first things i would want of all the things they're rebooting Mm -hmm. i mean why not that one at least it was good and it would be different and it would be you know older women kind of like you know getting through life at a totally different stage of their lives and still having that friendship and also those you know those those actresses the reason that worked so well is because they were real friends and also had incredible chemistry together so it could have worked it just didn't quite happen the right way I guess.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, And, of course, Mary's turn in Ordinary People. I mean, this is, you know, Robert Redford having the amazing idea to cast her against type um yeah. you know she's been known as america's sweetheart and then she plays beth jarrett who is most certainly not america's sweetheart what what are your when did you first see ordinary people and how, how did that sort of make you you know were you very young when you saw it like were you, when it first sort of came out and and did it sort of you know make you have a jarring <laughs> idea of mary like what what, what were your thoughts there
1: I think I didn't see it until I was an adult and I read the book and it's one of my favorite books. Mm. And then that's when I was like, Oh, I think that's that movie that she, you know, is one of those. And, um, but yeah, it's stunning. And I I love, I mean, I think the reason that that story about Robert Redford casting her and specifically the story is supposedly that he sort of saw her walking on the beach, you know, (laughs) this is what happens when you're like a star living in Malibu.
0: Um, (laughs)
1: And thought like, oh, it'd be so interesting if if we cast her as this terrible mother mm. um, because he was imagining her the way we all did, which was the sort of perfect person with this perfect life, which wasn't true. Mm. But that was how people sort of saw her. And I think it's interesting that he specifically was using... It's like almost every st- big stage of her career is a play on the previous image right It's yeah. like the the Mary Tyler Moore show plays on her dick you know uses the goodwill from her dick Van Dyke image to sort of sell this new kind of woman and then this idea of her as this together perfect life woman who everyone loves is then used to sort of undercut this, this terrible mother character and I think it also sort of goes with a theory that I have about people playing terrible people and I think that if if the person playing the terrible person is a really good person mm-hmm. it it comes through anyway and it makes us like them despite right. their character being terrible I think of like Julia Louis-Dreyfus right playing a number of awful people really a succession of worse and worse people um is like she elaine, in
0: beethoven <laughs> she is isn't yeah, elaine, she yeah yeah
1: you know <laughs> elaine is not great but then no. she, selena Meyer is, is really another level right. and she's such a sweet person in real life right that you know i think that somehow and i think of also like tony soprano is a very yeah good example like jim gandolfini by all accounts is like was like a saint mm-hmm. you know and i think that this might be a similar thing is like she's both bringing the goodwill of the public from her other characters and this inherent like goodness and then she's playing because if you have i mean that is a tricky character she is not likable
0: who's that elaine or no, or beth
1: that's jared yeah
0: yeah yeah it's is a very really
1: tricky. a tough sell and I think especially at that time like now we're we're almost numb to these terrible people since Tony Soprano came on the scene you know we've been like inundated with antiheroes mm. and so we're used to that now but at that time it was still a big gamble and it was a big gamble for her because she either could have squandered that goodwill that she had or people could have not thought her performance was up to par so mm. it was a big It was a big chance for her to take, and it turned out well, but, you know, we only know that now that it paid off.
0: Yes, absolutely, and it certainly did. Um, you mentioned Elaine, and you've done a whole book on Seinfeld, which I've yet to read. But do you f- and you talked about likability? <laughs> do you feel like any of the characters in Seinfeld are likable? Because when oh, I d- no. yeah when I did my no. um, lecture, I ended it with talking about the sort of death of um, very special episodes, and you know, mm-hmm. there's that that uh, often quoted thing um, where um, Larry David or Jerry, one of them, said. Um, You know, we don't have any messages No touchy-feely, blah 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 Um, No hugging, no learning That's it, thank you very much Um, I'm paraphrasing geniuses here But um, at the same time, Seinfeld's going on You have things still running on air Like Blossom Which, you know, every third episode was a very special Blossom
1: Really, that isn't that peak very special episode Because that's what I think of
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, where yeah. it sort of reads like an after-school special um, right. all the time. And the thing though with Blossom is she's likable, um, and the car- her father's likable, and I guess Joey's kind of likable. And see, whereas, yeah, he's fine. where whereas, <laughs> Seinfeld—they're just really these awful people, but you love them. So what? Right. So how do you feel? The likability transcends with these characters, and, and and spending time with them, and writing a book about them—who are these people—who are all so friggin' awful. What what do you think sort of makes them, um, good case studies or interesting characters to sort of discuss and dissect and analyze if they're, um, so awful? However, um, you know, complicated they are.
1: I mean, is it their I neurosis? is that they're just, they're funny. Yeah. Um, Like very, very funny. I I think that helps a lot. And this is another one where in retrospect, it doesn't look like it's hard, but like it was a huge, you know, everything about that show is like a huge experiment Mm. and no one, it shouldn't have worked and no one thought it would. And this is a huge reason that, you know, it's only if you can be as funny as Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David Mm. that you can get away with that, I think. Um, especially at that time, like if those were just obnoxious pe- four obnoxious people not being that funny <laughs> would not have worked. Right. It's just that they were very, very entertaining to watch. And that's another dream cast. I mean, yeah. just stupidly great. And really, I mean, I Jerry's talked about the fact that he does not, he acknowledges he is not the world's greatest actor. And so he needed to be surrounded by three like absolute world-class, the best mm-hmm. ever actors. And so it, I think it's that, if they were not good, if it were not funny and they were not good. And this is also, I think it really goes, it's like Jason Alexander too, um, by all accounts, is just a really, you know, actually good person. And you can even mm-hmm. kind of see, like he's kind of a goofy musical guy. Yeah, um, He's not... That character, he's not George Costanza, but I really feel he's another that's very similar to um, Lou Grant, where it's the if he commits to the seriousness of George Costanza as an actor, yes, and (laughs) that makes him funny, right? I mean, he he's really actually acting the whole time. It's not like a bit he's doing. He's he is George Costanza, and he takes George Costanza very seriously, and that's what's funny Mm. about him. And so I think it's just another of these magical, you know, and then they have like the nice gift of Michael Richards being a physical comedy genius. So, um, yeah, there's just, there's a lot.
0: And Jason Alexander, Jason Alexander is so old school, um, yeah. You know, um, musical theatre guy. Like, I love yeah. that he did The Burning, the slasher film in the early 80s and then went on to do sometimes, um Merrily We Roll Along. You know, they're, 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 there's, you know, amazing versatility there. What a wonderful, you know, all-rounder. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned, um, you know, Lightning in the Bottle casting, but also that show is so remarkably... Um, blessed with just scenarios, these great setups of really mundane innocuous things that just irritate these characters or force them into positions where they have to sort of make you know shitty decisions or whatever so right. that, that whole the setup stuff in that show is really strong and and you know incredibly inventive and innovative as well because you know sort of uh, throwing itself into the whole idea of a show about nothing when it is about a lot of stuff it's it's just yeah it's smart smart stuff and probably one of the last of its kind really i don't know what's really sort of followed off after seinfeld it's been that much of a sort of influential sitcom i can't really think of anything else post that show that really had that kind of i don't know that drive or that pull or that That innovation, can you? Well, for sure.
1: No, I mean everything that came after it is different. Yeah. From what you know, like it changed. It really, really do. I really do think it changed everything in terms of comedy and like. Even the formats,
0: even like the the shows became, you know, no, no studio audiences or no canned laughter, and it was, you know, and quirky took over. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And that's. I mean, you can never. I mean. The, if you try to directly imitate Seinfeld, it doesn't work because you just can't. But so everything that came after is basically, if you, like, there's elements of it in 30 Rock. There's elements yeah. of it in the Mindy Project. There's, you know, it's like... And and I, I maintain that they even made way for, like, Tony Soprano, as right. we were talking about. Like, I think they prepared America to love a, a murderer, you know, mm-hmm. um, because... Before that, there just was not the belief that you could have terrible people as main characters. And it turned out it worked and people loved it. So now all we get are terrible people on television. This is it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> just an endless slew of anti-heroes as yep. you said yeah i want to um close this. this has been wonderful jennifer thank you so much sure. uh, we need to collaborate on stuff um absolutely yeah um i wanted to ask as someone who loves television is and is as obsessed with television as i am and you've you know made this awesome career as a historian on tv do you feel that it's hard to sort of exp- or to, to, to bring your friends or family on on the same ride as you um you know if <laughs> If you're if you're if you're obsessed with Mary Tyler Moore, can you tell you know your friends to be the is it hard for you to sort of you know sell that to them who who might not be interested in Mary Tyler Moore or not know who what that show you know is about and you know what it sort of embodies is that does that make sense is it is, yeah,
1: yeah. It, it I think that's my job you know and yeah. that's what I like to that's what I'm trying to do is essentially like explaining to people um, why they should care about this stuff I do obviously believe that what we watch is super important. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise I wouldn't do this. I try really hard to stay away, for instance, from like trivia. I'm not saying it's fine if you're into that and like, you know, trivia contests are fine. I'm not saying that, but like, I always want to write a book that tells you what is important about the shit, like why there's actual meaning. Because if you think about, especially how much we consume now, it's actually more important than ever. It's like the stuff is in our brains and makes a difference and we see study after study say you know it increases empathy if you watch someone's story play out who's different from yourself or you know these things really we've you know the famous like joe biden said that will and grace made gay marriage happen and i i you know it's just joe biden saying that but still i think there's some truth to it and you know I think it can be, it is really important and we should take it seriously. And that's what I try to do. Um, So I've actually gotten a lot, like a lot of people, for instance, the Mary Tyler Moore show is a great one because some of my friends are really too young to have picked that up, you know, when it was on. And I had a party when I was writing the book, I had a party with a bunch of women who came over some of whom were 10 years younger than i was who had not seen the show Mm -hmm. and loved it you know and so i think it's fun to sort of share that with people and now you can get any not anything but almost anything you can certainly get all of the mary tyler moore show on hulu Mm -hmm. um you can get all of seinfeld on hulu and netflix next year uh so you know it's a good time to be able to like take in all of the stuff and see all the different eras, what, what TV was like at different times. And it really gives you, it can give you a sense of history. Even, you know, if you watch Seinfeld, you understand the nineties.
0: So. Yeah. And how that, that is so vitally important. I feel, but you, you see, so you've written a book on something like sex in the city um, and there's a, there's a generation of people um, and a generation of women and girls who know that, but don't know what came before the, you know, before mm-hmm. it. And I think that's really important. They need, they really do. I feel need to know, you know the importance of the pioneering shows like Mary Tyler Moore that would pave the way for something like Sex and the City would you agree there do you think there's a nice linear narrative there like a trajectory oh like, for sure yeah.
1: absolutely though it's funny it's like if you look at sex and say i always i always thought it cuz just because of my own personal situation it's like mm. i would think about it's like i think mary might faint if she watched sex in the city I don't know if she could handle I think well and what's funny is Valerie was even on sex in the city that's right Um, she played Justin Thoreau's mother once on on sex in the city and appropriately enough she was the the plot was that Carrie liked the mother but not the guy and like didn't want to break up with the guy that's right yes Valerie so much yes um but I think like Rhoda would definitely be down with Sex in the City and could handle it, but she'd have to like introduce Mary to it gently.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's that great I quote.
1: Some of yeah. it would be a little much for her. <laughs>
0: yeah, that great quote from the um the episode where she uh, Mary's delinquent, where uh, Murray's taunting her and she says, "I, I- I've been around, or well, I've been nearby." And
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes from that whole series it's That's so exactly good right.
0: and just talking about sorry going back to your point about tv being really important actually changing lives if you think about like things like the maud abortion episode my god that Uno you know, would influence mm-hmm. votes um the episode of cousin liz which was all um the um the proposition eight which was the anti-gay teacher thing that episode aired changed people's minds like across america you know um, not everyone's mind but it definitely helped um so yeah. all the, these shows really were important and tv is really important because everyone's watching they're at home watching exactly um do you feel like you know um people kind of miss the point of um past tv shows being that vitally important and do you feel like um a lot of this this historical stuff thank god you're writing a book on early television like that is bless you for yeah. doing that that's awesome But do you feel like people these days especially young people who are just you know stuck on screens on their phones and even watching their tvs um do you feel like they're missing the the value and the and the importance of all these great tv shows that came from you know yeah the late 40s all the way through into the 80s that really helped shape the the culture
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think i i think it's fun to even just like because i'm a nerd but like i think it's genuinely fun to see um stuff that came before and how it influences things and changes things and how and a lot of times too though it's also like not as different as you think you know in the past sometimes you think it's going to be so clearly antiquated and you know things don't things change and things don't change so it's it's fun to see both you know and i think it's the perfect time when we're all inside all the time to be you know you can really dive in and see some historic stuff
0: absolutely well jennifer thank you so much it's been so much fun
1: Yes, thanks for having
0: me. Absolutely. And yeah, um, we'll keep in touch and definitely thanks. keep writing. You're, you're Thank amazing. You. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. My name is Rhoda Morvester. I was born in the Bronx, New York in December 1941. I've always felt responsible for World War II. The first thing I remember liking that liked me back was food. I had a bad puberty. It lasted 17 years. I'm a high school graduate. I went to art school. My entrance exam was on a book of matches. I decided to move out of the house when I was 24. My mother still refers to this as the time I ran away from home. Eventually I ran to Minneapolis where it's cold and I figured I'd keep better. Now I'm back in Manhattan, New York. This is your last chance.